Thank you, worship uh, band. Uh, that was fantastic, and it ministered to me going into this. So actually, I want to pray just one more time. Never too much prayer, right? Uh, but just that the Lord, well, you'll, you'll, you'll see what I'm about to pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak tonight, that you would allow me to get out of the way, so to speak, and let your word speak to us on this subject of, of anger. Would you open up our hearts to be receptive to the truth of the gospel, Lord? I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So my two-year-old Thomas, how many of you have met my two-year-old Thomas? He's cute, isn't he? He's super cute. All right. So one thing I've witnessed recently as he develops and grows into a little human being, I know he's been a human being, but you know what I mean? He, um, he gets frustrated very easily all of a sudden. And it's funny to watch him. So we have this cooler in our living room and he will, it's his new favorite game to like try and wheel it around. And if he ever gets stuck in any, in any sense, he'll just, he'll basically just suddenly go into like a, a frenzy of just like yelling at it and like yelling. He doesn't yell for help. We're trying to teach him like, okay, when you get frustrated and you can't do something, just ask for help. But he doesn't do that right now. Right now he just basically goes over to it and he's like, ah! and he's just really angry about it. So there you go, yelling at you. Watch out. Watch out. Okay. Keeping you on your toes tonight. Okay. The reason I, I bring up Thomas is that when I watch him, I see a living picture of what's happening inside of me on a regular basis where I'm tempted, at least, to become angry about things. And oftentimes, uh, uh, this is part of the reason I want to preface it like this, we think of anger as these explosions um, where, and I, I grew up in a family where there were explosions of anger at times, and so I, that's what I equated with anger. That's not the only kind of anger that there is, and not the only kind of anger that we're going to talk about tonight. We are in this series uh, called Insidious, and Insidious is all about those so-called respectable sins. And so when we say we're going to talk about anger, I want you to broaden the category in your mind for what exactly I mean by that. Um, we're talking about from the root to the full-blown, maybe what you'd picture when you see someone angry, right? Um, and a lot of the root of it is simply irritability and frustration at, at, at small things in your life. But they often give rise to these outbursts, um, and they can, they can show themselves in different ways. But so tonight we are going to talk about anger, and I am convinced it's a universal problem. I don't think, is there anyone here that has never struggled with, with being angry? Anyone here that's never been angry or doesn't, doesn't struggle with it anymore? Okay. All right. I don't see any hands. So excellent. I think we all struggle with it to some degree. We're going to start with a definition of anger. And this is something I kind of compiled from a couple different sources. First of all, it's a feeling of extreme displeasure. All right. That just kind of describes that feeling you get. If you look it up in Webster Dictionary online, that's what's what it gives you essentially. Okay. Uh, but biblically, we can be a little bit more specific. So it's a feeling of extreme displeasure directed at or against perceived evil. So it starts out, well, it doesn't start out, but it is this extreme displeasure we feel, but it's not just sitting by itself. It actually has a direction to it. 
extreme displeasure, it's directed at perceived evil. And by that, I mean when we're angry, we are making a moral judgment. And we are saying what is happening is not right. Okay? So, for example, this morning I was parking and we were a little bit late. I wanted to try and make the coffee for our group, you know, that was going to be praying. And I get here, and it, I, we're late. It's like 9.45, so everyone has already gotten here for the 9.30 service. And I'm trying to find a parking spot, and immediately I find rising in me this irritation that I have to park, you know, like at the end of the parking lot, which to me is like Mars. I'm like, wow, I can't believe I have to park all the way out here. And, and I, um, obviously, I've been thinking about anger, like this whole week especially, and so it was particularly humorous to me once I caught myself in it saying, wow, okay. But just, I, in some sense, felt it was wrong that I had to park way out there. All right, was it actually wrong that I had to park way out there? Well, we're going to talk more about that. But, but when we are angry, we are making a moral judgment. We're saying something about this situation is wrong. I don't like it, and therefore it's wrong. All right, so it's directed against perceived evil. And it's often accompanied with sinful emotions, words, and actions that are hurtful to those who are objects of our anger. So oftentimes, and I think you'll agree with me, you've, been, you have probably been the object of anger where sinful acts are the fruit of anger. And I think we can think of it as even a piece of anger. You can't necessarily separate the strong feeling of extreme displeasure from its expression. So that's the working definition that we're going to work with uh, tonight. Moving forward, I want to talk about two lies that we tend to believe about our anger. Okay, the first one is my anger is righteous anger. Now, I would guess that most of us are not actively thinking this, uh, but at times we do, and so we'll kind of, I'm going to try to address this. Um, we're going to, in order to address this, uh, there was a really helpful um, book by Robert Dean Jones, and I'm going to use um, his definition of righteous anger, and we're going to back it up with scripture. Um, what is righteous anger? I think we have to start there in order to show why our anger, generally speaking, is not righteous, okay? So there's three aspects that go into righteous anger. First of all, righteous anger reacts against actual sin, so right off the bat, my example of being in the parking lot it has a problem if I'm trying to categorize it as righteous. Righteous anger reacts against actual sin. And by the way, I am uh, assuming that there's such a thing as righteous anger, and I believe scripturally there is. If you read the Old Testament, it is full of the wrath of God. So we have to, to say at least for God there's such a thing as righteous anger, and that's where we're, we're st our starting point. So, first of all, it reacts against actual sin. Second of all, it focuses on God and his kingdom rights and concerns. And it does not focus on my kingdom, my rights, and my concerns. It's not personal. So, righteous anger focuses on God. And then thirdly, righteous anger is accompanied by godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. So if there is any expression of anger that is sinful, then immediately uh, we can recognize that as not being righteous. 
to walk through each of these three, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 3. And as you go there, I think there's a, there's a good summary of righteous anger I just want to read to you. It's righteous anger leads to godly expressions of worship, ministry, and obedience. So there's a high standard for what righteous anger actually is. Worship, ministry, and obedience are the fruit of righteous anger. And we're going to see that in the life of Jesus. We are told in Scripture that Jesus was without sin, and so when we look at his anger, we can safely assume that his anger is righteous. So we're going to examine it and, and, and kind of test our hypothesis here. Is, uh, how, is this a good definition for righteous anger? First of all, it reacts against actual sin. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Mark 3, 1 through 6. So this is Jesus. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that is the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So this is the account we're going to look at to test this, uh, these aspects of righteous anger and compare ourselves to this. So first of all, again, righteous anger reacts against actual sin. So if you look at the Pharisees, what is their actual sin in this case? What is, what is Jesus reacting against? If you look at verse 5, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He is grieved also and angry at the same time at their hardness of heart. When we see hardness of heart, that is a posture toward God. It's interesting, we don't see Jesus, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'm just going to stop there. Excuse me. So it's, it's directed on God rather than on Jesus personally, okay? So once again, I want to go back to this example of, of me in the parking lot, right? There was, no, there was no actual sin against me involved in that. So there was nothing to provoke my anger that could, that could call that righteous anger. I find this is also true. For me, I'm in, if, it's, if I'm in the car, I feel like I have just these, these inalienable rights to, to go the speed I want to go and all these things. But the fact of the matter is, uh, I don't. So my question for you is, what situations are you often in where you get angry on something, and it's probably not even a situation where someone has sinned against you? We're going to talk about in a second situations where you are sinned against. But first of all, what are those situations where you just, you might flare up because you essentially have a right, you feel like you have a right that has been transgressed. To go back to our, our definition of, of anger, anger makes a moral judgment on something. I, thought it's, I think it's interesting to think through a little bit this idea 
of having rights because our culture is enamored with finding rights in everything. I was watching a YouTube video and it was one, it was actually, I think it was a TED talk, but it was a woman who was um, just describing her kind of epiphany because she realized that um, in order to defend the earth properly, we should recognize that the earth has rights. And I was like, okay, hold, hold up, hold up. Wh where are we getting this idea of rights? And it actually started me on a train of thought just saying like, okay, wh what do we mean by rights even? And as Americans, it's an extremely tempting to equate our bill of rights with our rights as believers and start to think that God has promised us certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do you, that's not in the Bible, okay? Um, now, under U.S. constitutional law, yes, you have those rights, and I would, I would say those are great. Those are great things to have in the law. I'm not, I'm not knocking those rights in our, in our Constitution. But what I am saying is, before God, we don't have rights as such. What we have are privileges. The only right that you can claim before the throne of God is the right to be punished for your sin. That's what God owes you, right? If we say we have a right, it's we're saying God, or someone owes me this. So in this country, someone owes me religious liberty according to the law, okay? According to the law of God, God owes me nothing as a starting point, okay, before the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then once we accept the free gift of God in Jesus Christ, we gain privileges. And those are unmerited gifts, with those privileges, and they're very specific in Scripture, it's amazing what God has given us and what he promises to us, and we should know what those things are. But often we, we think that God has promised us things in this life that simply are not ours to depend on or to count on. And so that includes going whatever speed you want to on the highway or, or whatever it is. There's a certain on-ramp. It's, it's funny because it's after church every, every week. I'm getting on to 440. People go like, like, you know, like, I'm trying to get up to, like, 65 miles an hour so we can merge. And people are going, like, 40. And every week, it's a test of my patience because it's, like, they're going 40. And if you're the 40-mile-an-hour person, I'm just saying it's not your fault. It's my fault. It's my sin I'm talking about here. So it's, like, oh, my gosh, let, let's get going. But it's, like, a test of my, I get this, this sense of I deserve this. And I'm making a moral judgment on it very quickly saying we should be going this speed right now. And you are going this speed. And, and so that's my personal area, and I realize it's not everyone's, and I applaud you if you are not quick to anger when you are driving. Um, but the point is, you, we need to recognize that we actually have no, no, no rights as such. I want you to turn to Luke 17, uh, just to illustrate this. So Luke 17, verse 7, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field after a long day of work, you have this servant, he comes in, come at once and recline at table, I'm going to serve you dinner. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. He's describing this relationship between a master and a servant where the master assumes that the servant is going to do everything in his power until he has 
basically dropped out of exhaustion to serve the master. And he's saying, this is actually right. In uh, verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? It was his job. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. This goes back to humility, doesn't it? I actually couldn't remember if I mentioned this in my humility talk. I was like, because I thought about it, but I don't think I did. This, this passage is just incredible because this reflects the attitude we ought to have in recognizing our place before God. We, you and I, are unworthy servants. And so whatever it is that God calls us to and whatever God sovereignly allows into our life is, is according to God's will. And therefore, we can say and we can accept it and we can say in faith, We've only done what was our duty when it comes to, to living righteously. And we've gotten far better than we deserve. Frustration at the end of the day, if we're frustrated with something, is actually an accusation at God. You are accusing God of malpractice in some way. You're, you're accusing him of mistreating you somehow. As if him sending his son to die in your place and then giving you new life was not enough, he needs to also give you fill in the blank. So, once again, righteous anger, to go back to this, it, it reacts against actual sin. And so often our anger is spiked by our expectations not meeting, not meeting our expectations, rather than actual sin, okay? When we see Jesus, to go back to Mark, if you want to actually head back there, Mark 3 again. When we, when we watch Jesus' anger, these, these Pharisees are, are there to accuse him. They are malicious intent, and he is grieved and angered, not by their personal attacks, but rather by their hardness of heart toward God. All right, to move on. So, first of all, it reacts against actual sin. Second of all, there's that, there's that. Focuses on God and his kingdom, God's rights, and God's concerns. And so I've already been saying this a little bit. In, in Jesus' example, it's, it's their posture before God that, that is the problem. It's not actually the personal attack on Jesus that he is reacting against. Even though if anyone had the right to react that way, because Jesus is God, he could have. But it's interesting, if you follow his life, he never did. He never reacted in anger in a personal manner. It was never because of a personal attack. It was always God and his glory was on the line. And then he would show anger occasionally and actually very rarely. So an example of that is uh, cleansing the temple. And we're going to come back to this example in a moment. But when he cleanses the temple, what does he call the temple? My father's house. How can you, make my, my, how can you do this to my father's house? He's concerned for God's reputation and God's glory. Um, another text. I want you to actually go there again. I'm going to make you flip through your Bibles tonight. First Peter 2. 20 to 23. 1 Peter 2. And this is actually in the context similar to what Jesus was saying about you should understand yourself to be a servant. This is a context where Peter is now instructing servants in how to obey masters, even if those masters are unjust. So if I back up actually to verse 19, for this is a gracious thing, Again, I'm going to pause and just say 1 Peter 2. That's where we're at. Let's see if I can get it on there. There it is. 
1 Peter 2, verse 19, this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a, a good thing. 20, verse 20, for what credit is, is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But, and now listen here, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Did you catch that? Christ actually lived his life purposefully as an example to us, so that we can look at him, as we're doing right now, and follow in his steps. Verse 22, he, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now watch how he reacts to the sin against him. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I recognize that in many cases, we are most tempted toward anger when someone has sinned against us. So in the first example I, I was giving, there's a lot of cases where we're just, we're just given to anger for, for various things. But in the more serious cases of anger, you might feel justified in your anger because someone actually sinned against you. The first premise, which is that righteous anger is against actual sin, you, you can check that box because someone has actually sinned against you. I'm guessing... Almost every one of us in this room has had our parents sin against us. Perhaps you've had siblings sin against you. Um, certainly everyone in this room has had friends backstab you. I know that I have backstabbed friends before and been a terrible friend. And so just because you were sinned against, hear me on this, just because you were sinned against does not make your anger righteous. In fact, often you have to be most careful that you do not slip into, into unrighteous anger, sinful anger, when you have been sinned against, because it's such a temptation. What do you do when you are sinned against? I'm not saying that it doesn't hurt, but if we follow Jesus' example, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There's a trust there that God is going to make it right. All right? Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay God is very concerned with justice, and he will make justice, but it is not our place to take that justice ourselves. And even though Jesus had the right to judge in that manner, he chose not to, to be an example to us. So when he was reviled, he did not return it. So I uh, had a coworker once who, uh, he slandered me, essentially. You guys know what slander means? It's, it's basically to verbally attack your reputation. I think that's a good way of understanding it. So he, to my face, said, oh, man, you're doing such a good job, man. Like, you're awesome. And then to others, I heard later, was saying, like, wow, he's awful at what he does. And I was like, that stung real bad. And it was to, to a, uh, several other people who I worked with. And so I was, I mean, in that situation... I am tempted to be angry about that. And yet, just because I have been sinned against, first of all, I don't, it's not as if God gave me the right not to be sinned against. No, he said, actually, you're going to endure a lot in this world. And, and secondly, I don't have the right to become angry with him. 
So uh, just a question to you. Are, you. are you harboring anger against someone who has sinned against you? If you are, that's a, that's a huge problem, actually. That simmers and, and it becomes resentment. And we're going to talk about why that's actually such a big problem soon. All right, lastly, righteous anger is accompanied by godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. Back to Mark. Go back to Mark. Here we are, Mark 3. So again, we're looking at Jesus and we're saying, okay, is this true of Jesus? I would say absolutely. Look at, look at his, if you, if you see, if you just read up until verse 5, again, Mark 3, verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger and you stop there. You think, and, and, and you only had the context of watching what we tend to do when we are angry. You might expect a lot, Jesus to do a lot of things directed at the Pharisees. But in this case, he does not allow that anger to control him at all. In fact, he does not address the Pharisees at all. He just continues to do what is right and good, which was to heal this man. He was not put off his path whatsoever by his righteous anger at sin. Jesus' anger is always marked by self-control. Another place where he's angry is when he, when the disciples restrict children from coming to him, and he rebukes them. He becomes indignant with them, and he rebukes them. And then the next thing he's doing is inviting children to, like, to come and sit on his lap, right? So it's not like he's flying off the handle in these things. He needs to go cool off. Wow. This is, like, really mood, mood setting, isn't it, for... <laughs> Watch out! <laughs> um, yeah. For those that are listening to the recording, we heard thunder. Does anyone, I don't know if anyone listens to that. It's kind of prideful of me to think that, but that's all right. Okay, so Jesus is always marked by self-control. One, now you might scratch your head and say, well, wait, what about him cleansing the temple? This is often gone to as the, the primary example of him showing anger. And I just want to point out a couple things about, about that text. If you wanted to turn there, it's in, it's in John 2, but I'm just going to talk about it. I think most of us are familiar in a general sense with what happens there. This is early in Jesus' ministry. I think it's clear in Scripture there's actually two cleansings. So this is the first cleansing of the temple that he does early in his ministry. Um, but first of all, he doesn't lose his temper. And part, we, can, we can see his self-control in the fact that he actually wove a whip together. So he sat down gathered materials, and made a whip. So it wasn't like he walked in there, saw everything, and then immediately just started acting. He act, this was premeditated, for one thing. And then it never describes his reaction as anger. Interestingly, what, what happens is the disciples watch it, and then they think to themselves, they, they remember a psalm that says, zeal for your house consumes me. So we can kind of equate, okay, zeal, this passion, with these really extreme measures and actions happening, right? But, but again, I don't think we should picture Jesus flying off the handle as he, as he, you know, whips people. Now, I think it was a chaotic scene, but to, just to say this, he was filled with passion for God's glory, and he was entirely in control of himself. I, I'm almost thinking of it like like the weight of a mountain compressed into like the head of a needle, right? That's the, that's the kind of power that he had when, when he's channeling zeal for God's house. 
So I, <laughs> this is just my imagination at this point. But if I were to like be in that temple at that time and then meet his eye, I can only imagine <laughs> what you'd see in his eye, right? I, I just imagine him going up to one of those money changers and it says he poured out their money, right? Now he, he could have done something like this for sure, but I wonder if it was almost just this calculated like, this is, this is wrong, right? And I'm going to show you exactly what it looks like. And I'm going I'm to chase your, your animals out of here. And I'm going to do all of this. But at, at no point would people have been, I think they would have been almost confused. Like, wait, he, he's doing this with absolute authority. But he's not, this doesn't look like the anger that we're used to, in a sense. Again, that's a little bit of my imagination. But, he, but there's no indication that he lost his temper. That's my main point. He's marked by zeal and he's marked by self-control. And those are the things, the godly qualities, that, that can never... <laughs> Sorry, I just looked at people smile. Yeah, that's God. Um, and that'll never be lost from, from Jesus' uh, life. So just to, I just want to contrast that, what we see in Jesus, with our anger. So once again, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3, um, verses 7 and 8. So Colossians chapter 3, um, 7 and 8. Paul is addressing this church, and he is saying, put to death your sin. And in verse 7, he's describing that, you know, all of these things you used to walk in, and these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now, in verse 8, you must put them all away. Anger, and then watch the, what, what follows anger. Wrath malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. You can, you can almost see the, there's actually, I think there's a progression in those. So anger, first, kind of setting the stage. And then wrath is, is almost the same thing, but just in, intensified, and usually it means it, there's a display of anger. When God shows his wrath, he's displaying it. Malice, you begin to wish harm for other people. Okay, so you're angry, there's an intensification, you start to show it, and then malice, there's, a, there's sinful, malicious intent. Whatever you're directing your anger at has now turned to harm. I want to harm that thing. And then slander, this begins that verbal attack. And finally, obscene talk. It seems tied to slander to be talking about your flavoring, your derogatory remarks with obscenities. And we've seen this, haven't we? It's actually all over our culture. Hopefully it's not a part of our, our daily life in, in church, but certainly it's a temptation. This is, this is what sinful anger looks like. And it's very, very, very different from the godly qualities and the godly ways that Jesus expressed his anger. So if those things mark your anger, you should be concerned. <laughs> that's, that's sin. And more than likely, not only is the expression of your anger sinful, but even the source of your anger is sinful. There's sinful desires in your heart. There are sinful, there's sinful pride and selfishness at play. It was interesting that we just talked about pride and selfishness. And as I was just researching this, um, biblical counselors tend to point to those two as some of the most important roots of anger. They describe anger actually as a secondary emotion. They're, it's triggered by other things, and, and, and pride and selfishness are first on the list. So, just to review, righteous anger, it reacts against actual sin, it focuses on God and his kingdom, and it's accompanied by godly actions. 
I hope that at this point I've convinced you that most of your expressions of anger in your life are sinful. Most of them. It is possible to actually check each of those boxes. And I was even talking to my, to my mentor, Peter, um, about this. And, he, and I was even just telling him, I'm kind of convicted that this, I, don't, I don't know if I even feel this anger very often. The, the really the right kind of anger. Am I actually consumed with zeal for God that I would get angry about the right things? That's a whole other test. And it's a whole other sermon or, or conversation. So we've only done one lie. I told you I was going to give you two. And this one's not um, quite as extensive. Um, but lie number two is that my anger isn't that bad. So I may have convinced you, yes, okay, I have a, I have a problem with anger. My anger is sinful. But I just want to remind you what Jesus says about your anger, about any anger, any instance of anger. So I want to go to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous of Jesus's sermons. And the point that, that Jesus makes in Matthew 5, 21, is that in God's judgment, anger is the moral equivalent of murder. Anger, in God's judgment, is the moral equivalent of murder. And I want that to sink in for us, so we're going to look at it. Let's see, did I save the spot? Nope. Give me a sec. Here we are. So verse, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is essentially interpreting the very law that he, as God, gave to Moses all those years ago. And it has been misinterpreted by the Jews. And so he starts to teach authoritatively, contrary to what the Pharisees have been teaching the people up to this point. And so he takes the, the commandment, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, the second part seems to have been added by, uh, by the religious teachers, but it's not necessarily against the law. It's actually more of an expression of the law. There, are, there were certainly laws that would say, okay, here's how you would take someone to court who actually has murdered. So you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus begins to reinterpret that law. What, what, what the Jews were doing and misinterpreting was that they were missing the heart of the law in many senses. And I think a good example of this is actually lust. So if you just jump down a couple verses to verse 27, and I think this is familiar with everyone, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So... The idea is, as he goes through this, is, okay, it's not just literally don't kill someone. He's trying to point to something deeper than that. He's saying, okay, if you think of murder as the tree, the full expression of a sin, the seed underneath the surface before it is given expression still has the essence of that sin. So, okay, you haven't committed adultery, but you lusted, and you are actually accountable to God for that sin. He's doing the same thing with anger. Okay, you have not murdered. Let's see what he, what he says. Okay, you shall not murder. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, there's a, there's a lot here. And I realize 
Uh, we can't dive fully into it. But just to summarize it, there's three expressions of anger mentioned. First of all, just being angry. So there's not any outward expression even mentioned. And then there are two examples of basically a sin of the tongue. You've got uh, whoever insulting his brother or saying, you fool. So you have these three examples, and then you also have three courts that find you guilty. And, they, and these courts have progression to them. The first one is uh, just judgment in general, and that would probably be the local court. The second one is the council. The, the Greek for that is the Sanhedrin. So the idea is like the supreme court of the land, okay? And then the third one is God's court. And what he's saying is, if you have anger, any of these three expressions of anger in your heart, then you could be justly taken to any human court and then the Supreme Court and then even God's court and be found guilty, not just of anger, but of murder. Notice how he switches. He says, you shall not murder, and then he starts talking about anger. So, anger, uh, I think I have some slides here. There we are. Anger is murder. And to make the point, all types of anger, whether that be the hidden in the heart anger or the outward expression of it, they're both sinful and they're both actually equivalent to murder in Jesus' judgment. And finally, anger warrants hell. Notice that final judgment. You'll be liable to the hell of fire. That's some, that's heavy, if you ask me. That means that if I get angry with Kate, my wife, and I, even if I don't express it, the seed of murder is in my heart. I might as well have drawn a knife on my wife, which I, I, I hate even that idea, but that's what God is saying. He's saying this is, this is the moral equivalent. This is what's actually going on in your heart, even if you have the restraint not to express it. This is the seed, if you will, of murder. So, that, so anger is not something to be trifled with, is, is my point. It's not something, it's not petty. Uh, it's incredibly serious. In fact, it's serious enough that Jesus, even for one act of your anger, would have had to die in your place and did. So this should just cast us on the mercy of God because all of us, to some degree or another, struggle with anger, and all of us would be liable to hell if it weren't for God's grace. So praise the Lord that he offers us grace in Jesus Christ. Amen? Where, where would we be without that? And it's entirely undeserved. So what do we do? What do we do with our anger? I've convinced you, hopefully, that your anger is sinful and that um, it's serious. Lastly, Here's some simple directives for addressing anger um, that are biblical. So, first of all, before anger, frame your life properly. And that is, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Going back to, to humility. And Luke 17, that was the passage we looked at of understanding yourself to be an unworthy servant. If we understand ourselves in God's economy, and we realize that we are servants and that he owes us nothing, but he promises us an incredible amount. But in this life, we're going, to, we're going to have hardship and struggle. If we frame our life that way, then when we hit those 
those sufferings, when we hit sin against us, we're going to react differently. We're going to understand it differently. We're going to understand I am the one who has been forgiven a mountain of debt before God. And so no matter what someone else does to me, it can't compare to my sin before God, and therefore I'm going to forgive. That's the spirit of a Christian. Secondly, if you're in anger, Scripture is constantly saying, slow yourself down. Okay? So it's almost a given in Scripture that you will be angry, and yet it says again and again, be slow to angry. And, and God himself is described that way. He's slow to anger. So um, James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's why I said slow down and shut your mouth. And, and part of this, if you know yourself, you know that when you're in anger, those words seem to slip out of your mouth without you even intending them to go. Have you guys experienced that? It's horrible. It, it just goes, and you're like, oh, shoot. Okay, I just messed that up. And uh, that happened with me and, and Kate just recently. We were both tired. We, Eden was not sleeping. It was like, okay, are you going to go and rock her again, or am I going to go and rock her again? We were both frustrated, and words came out. Now, thankfully, she's a very forgiving person. So, uh, and we praise the Lord for his grace. Uh, but, but if you can, don't, don't speak. Take a second and ask yourself, why, why am I angry? Is this a good reason to be angry? Most likely not. You'll, you'll at least keep yourself from sinning against someone else. And finally, after repent and forgive quickly. Now, the repentance aspect of it needs to happen quickly. In fact, that's what Jesus goes on to say in the Sermon on the Mount. Go with your accuser quickly. If you've offended someone through anger, you need to make that right as quickly as you can. Because anger has this tendency to, to plant seeds that fester and cause immense relational turmoil over time if you do not deal with it. So if you have sinned against someone in anger, go and be reconciled to them as quickly as you can. Do everything in your power to do so. And then with that, forgive each other. We're called to that over and over again. You are going to experience relational trauma and people are going to sin against you and we are called to forgive them as quickly as we can. So Ephesians 4.26, that is the that says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Be anger, be angry and do not sin. Don't let that sun go down on your anger. And it basically just means there is urgency to resolving that. All right, it's pouring. I've been at it for plenty long. Um, it's really beautiful, actually. Who here likes rain? I, isn't this fantastic? I don't know. I'm like, this is, I love this. We're all stuck here. We've got chips and a lot of candy. And, oh, actually, we have incredible brownies. That's the most important thing. All right. Um, I seriously digress from the point. Um, <laughs> so let me actually just bring it back to this just for one moment. Um, I just urge you to take your anger seriously. And especially because anger tends to reveal itself to those that we're actually closest with. So I know many of you still live with your parents. And I know from living with my parents uh, that that can be incredibly challenging. Not because they're sinning against you most of the time, but because you are ready to assert yourself and be an individual and, and do your own thing. And oftentimes there's a clash of worlds there. Be very careful and, and, and honor your parents as, as much as, as you possibly can. 
Um, and then in, in this group, we need to be a people who are quick to forgive. All right, let's, let's pray. Let's pray together.